Would you pray with me? We declare again, as we just sang, Jesus, you are good. We say hallelujah, praise to the Lord. God, I pray that as we look at your word now, that we would remember that it is not our goodness, but your goodness that saves us. So fill us with the Holy Spirit as we open your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are lots of ways that people might try to make their way to God. Lots of ways that people might try to earn their salvation. There are lots of different religions out there. There are lots of assumptions. Lots of ideas that we could come up with to say, hey, I think that this is how I might try to please God. Even among Christians, I think there are some wrong ways that people try to earn their way to God. And let me give you two of the most common. Following the rules and trying to be a good person. I think there are lots of people out there that would just say, well, here's the things that God commands us to do, so I'll just try to do them. And maybe some people think, maybe not even intentionally, maybe it's just in the back of their mind, but maybe they're thinking, that's how I'll earn my way to God. Or other people just assume, hey, I'm a good person. I've talked to lots of people in my life who've given that answer when I've asked them, why do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? I've heard too many people say, well, I'm a pretty good person. It's like they're banking on that at the end of the day, that when they meet God that they're going to say, hey, come on, God, look at me. Don't I measure up? Well, one of the things I hope you've seen so far in our sermon series here in Romans 1 through 8, we've been in this series for about three months now, and we're, we're heading into this home stretch now, but one of the things I hope you've seen is that the only way to receive salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. We can't make it to God on our own. It's, it's only in God's mercy that he sent Jesus to us gave us that offer of life that we could receive him by faith. So we can't earn righteousness by what we do. We could never follow the rules well enough, and we can't be a good enough person on our own to do it. Now it's interesting, if you were to ask people 2,000 years ago how they might try to earn their way to God, they might have actually given a similar answer. And I'm thinking specifically of a Jew 2,000 years ago, and if we were to say to them, how are you going to try to make it to God? They might say, well, God has given us the Old Testament law. He's given us these rules that we should follow, so that's what I'm trying to do, trying to follow those rules. Now, over the last two Sundays, we've seen Paul say things in chapter 6 like, you are not under law. Or as Paul said earlier in Romans 3.20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. So one of the points that Paul is trying to make so far is, you can't make it to God through law following. Now, to a Jew 2,000 years ago, that might have sounded really offensive. The law was their, their treasured possession, you could say. And now here's Paul saying you are not under law. So in Romans 7, I think Paul explains a proper way to view the law. Now for us in 2014, perhaps this might seem a little bit unnecessary. We don't come from this from a Jewish perspective. We don't come from this struggling with perhaps these ideas of how do I follow Old Testament law. And in that sense, maybe it's highly possible that Romans 7 isn't maybe a favorite passage for many of you. Now, in saying that, I've broken one of the unwritten rules of preaching. You're not supposed to say that the passage you're preaching on is maybe seen as a least favorite passage of some people. And that's not what I'm trying to say. But what I am saying is that this maybe isn't one of the passages that we run to first as we're trying to explain to other people or even to ourselves what the message of the Bible is. So what should we do when we come across a passage like that? 
Well, you could say, uh, Paul uses the analogy of a body similarly, that parts of the body that don't have greater honor are given greater honor. They're, they're treated with more respect. So in that sense, what I want us to do today is I want us to look at Romans 7 and give it proper respect. And, and maybe if it's a passage that you have overlooked, maybe it's time today for us to look into it and figure out what it does say so that we can hear from God. Remember, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. That's a very important verse from 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and useful. So what we're looking at today is God-breathed scripture, useful for our lives. Now, some passages of the Bible are very clear. You don't have to work real hard to figure out how do we apply this to our lives, but this passage is one that we might need to dig into a little bit. So uh, get your digging boots ready, all right? When we send our kids off to do digging, we put boots on them so you guys can theologically now put on your boots, and we're going to dig in to Romans 7. And we're going to look at the entire chapter of Romans 7 today, and it's it's a fairly long chapter, but I decided that we were going to do it all in one sitting today because it really all does flow together, and I think looking at it as as one unit is going to help us understand chapter 7 as a whole today. So just a little bit of context. Again, uh, we're walking through the first eight chapters of the, of the book of Romans here in Cornerstone. And in chapter 6, what we have just seen is Paul saying that we are not under law, we're under grace. Now that Christ has come, uh, the, in the book of Hebrews it says we're in a new covenant, a better covenant than the old covenant. So we've just come from Paul saying that, and now in chapter 7 we're going to look at how we should view the law. And we're going to look at Romans 7 in three parts today. And after I have walked through all three of those parts, I want to show you three different applications to this passage. But before we do that, just a very quick summary statement of Romans 7. This chapter is about how Christ, not our human effort, saves us. Okay? I, I just hope, you know, till the day I die, I, I keep repeating this message, it is not human effort that saves us. It is Jesus Christ who saves us. And we must not have any different idea about how we're going to get to heaven than through Christ, through faith in Christ. Okay, so let's see what Romans 7 says. Like I said, we're going to look at it in three parts. The first part is verses 1 through 6, so I'm going to read those now. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So my first point today is we are in Christ, not under law. And that's for those of us who have received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We are in Christ and no longer under the law. Now, if you were to read the Old Testament, you would get a very glowing picture of the law. I just quickly this week looked back to Psalm 119, and I picked out three phrases from it. Uh, I love your law. I will not forget your law. I stand in awe of your laws. But now Paul says, we have died to the law. So what's the deal? 
Well, in verse 5, as well as if you look ahead to the first part of chapter 8, we see that there is an inherent weakness in the law. And the remedy, well, uh, before the remedy, um, the weakness is that we came into this world with a sinful nature. And the sinful passions aroused in us by the law bore fruit for death. That's what it says, and I'll explain that a little bit later. But the remedy, according to Paul, is that we need to die to the law so that we can belong to Christ. Instead of remaining in this sinful nature, sinful passion sort of life, we're we're to die to sin, like it said in chapter 6, but also to die to the law so that we can belong to Christ. And in verses 1 through 3, there's a very simple analogy. It's the analogy of marriage. And you don't have to overthink this analogy. It's very simple that when one of the spouses dies, then the other spouse is released from that law of marriage. And we, we just saw it yesterday, till death do you part at the wedding that we had here. But the idea is that when death does them part, then they're free from that law of marriage. And, and Paul is saying, like I said, that we are to die to the law so that we can belong to Christ. And again, in chapter 6, we are supposed to die to sin. So dying to sin and dying to the law are a, a very similar thing, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit today. There's a connection. But for now, the point is simply, we need to die to one thing, the law, so that we can belong to Christ. Okay? There, there's no way that we can make it to God any other way, so we need to die to any ideas that we would have on our own about how we would make it to God other than faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? No way of salvation other than that. So we need to die to the law. Otherwise, as you read on in Romans 7, you're going to see this struggle to follow the law. And and one of the things that I look at in Romans 7 is I don't want to live the rest of my life in just this this huge back-and-forth struggle with trying to follow the law in my own human effort. And God actually tells us there's something better that he has for us, to die to sin, to die to the law, so that we can belong to Christ. Now, the law itself spoke about this idea, about how the law needed something else to fulfill it. Let me point out a couple things. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses is talking about the law, and in that chapter he talked about another prophet who was going to come. So, so Moses was giving the law, but he said there's going to be another prophet who comes later, and you're going to have to listen to him. And we know now that that other prophet is Jesus Christ. Also in the law, the law is sometimes called the Old Covenant. Now, the law itself spoke of a new covenant that would come later, and it even itself in the law said, only in the new covenant will we find the full forgiveness of sins. So the Old Covenant itself said there's something better coming, and we now have that New Covenant that came in Jesus Christ. So for Paul to say, to imply that the law is weak and we need to die to it, is really just the fulfillment of what the law itself had said, because the law was never meant to bring us salvation. The law was meant for another purpose, and we'll look at that as we go on as well. So, Again in verse 5, the law aroused our sinful passions and the result was that we bore fruit for death. And it's only in Christ then that we can have life. See, Christ did what we couldn't do. Christ did a lot of things we couldn't do. Things like walk on water and raise himself from the dead. That's a pretty big thing. But one other really huge thing he did that we couldn't do is that he fulfilled the law perfectly. No one else was ever able to do that. But Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly so that he could offer himself as an unblemished, perfect sacrifice for us. Do you see how that works? Somebody had to do it. All of humanity was waiting and and failing at following the law, and then Jesus came and fulfilled it, and it's only in him 
then, that we can be declared righteous. Okay, it's interesting to me then what happens next in Romans 7. On the one hand, you could almost just skip from verse 6 all the way over to chapter 8. Look at the end of verse 6. We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And we could just say, let's go to chapter 8. It tells us about how to live in the new way of the Spirit. And that's where we're going to get the next three Sundays. But in between, Paul has this, uh, the rest of the chapter, it's kind of like a parenthesis where Paul talks about the law. Because to a Jew, again, if he says we're dead to the law, a Jew is going to have some questions. They're, you know, they're going to be in the back of the room saying, um, excuse me, Mr. Paul, uh, isn't the law really good? What are you saying? Um, and in some ways I felt like uh, this is almost like a, a seminary class here that we're doing today. In my seminary classes, what the professors would do is that they would, they would give their lecture and then at the end of their lecture they would have question and answer time. So I almost thought, you know, we should have a time here for question and answer. Um, I guess we're not going to do that, but if you have questions, you know how to find me. I, I'd be glad to talk with you if you have more questions about the law. But, okay. The rest of chapter 7 is almost kind of like a little sidetrack here because these questions come up. How in the world are we supposed to view the law now? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at those. There, there's two questions that come up, and we're going to look at them and try to answer them. But there's something else interesting in here. We Christians who read this passage, we ask a different question about chapter 7. The question that we ask is, is Paul writing this as a Christian or a non-Christian? In the rest of chapter 7, he uses the very simple word I, yet it has befuddled theologians <laughs> up and down the river. Um, the question is, and I almost hesitate to bring this up, I don't, I don't have any great joy in bringing up theological debates, by the way. It's not my goal to confuse anybody. It's not my goal to have an argument with anybody. But there is a theological issue in here that we should probably know about, and it has to do with the question, when Paul says I, is he talking about himself before he came to Christ? Or is he talking about himself in his current struggle as a Christian to, to follow God? Now, this is one of those issues that we are free to disagree about. Okay? So you're going to hear pretty soon where I come from because it's one of those where you almost have to pick a side. It's not like you can just say, it's both. He's writing as a Christian and a non-Christian. Um, maybe it's fair to look at the passage that way, but I think at the end of the day, you kind of are either on one side or the other. So you're going to see where I come from in just a moment. Um, but if you disagree with me, that's okay. And then also the thing I would say is that our application points at the end are going to be the same. So we'll have a group hug later, okay? But um, if you disagree with me, it's going to be okay. So the two possibilities. One, Paul is speaking about his current struggle as a, as a Christian. So even though he mentions some historical language in the first part, he eventually gets to this place where he talks about how he is trying to do what's right, but even as a Christian, he struggles to do what's right. The second, or second option is that Paul is speaking about his old life as a Pharisee, or that he's speaking even about the life of Israel in general. And he's talking about this idea about how in his old life he tried to please God, but now looking back, he realizes that he couldn't do it. Now, I tend towards that second view, that Paul is talking about his old life as a Pharisee. Now, in saying that, uh, I also realize that I might be taking away one of your favorite passages. A lot of Christians like to go to Romans 7 and talk about our Christian struggle with sin. And let me just say two things. One, if you want to hold that view, you're, that's okay with me. I don't mind. It's actually a really difficult one to figure out. There's strong arguments on both sides. So one, it's okay to disagree with me. And two, I'll give you a different passage that I think actually does a better job of explaining our current struggle with sin. I'll point you to that in just a little bit. Okay, um, 
Having said all of that that I just said, remember what I said a few minutes ago. The point of chapter 7 is actually to answer questions about the law. So it's funny how we Christians kind of have our questions as we address this passage, but, but Paul's audience would have had very different questions. So let's look at how Paul addressed these questions, moving on to verses 7 through 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So my second point today is that the law is good. So don't misunderstand. Just because we're supposed to die to the law, it doesn't mean that the law has no, no use or no point. See, the problem isn't the law. The problem is our sin. Okay? Uh, you could read Romans 7 and say, oh, the law, it was just bad, it was always meant to go away. But no, that's not true. The problem wasn't the law, the problem is our sin. And it's not that the law made us sin, it's that the sinful nature that we were all born with looked at the law and said, oh, I'm not supposed to do those things, but those things look good, I think I'm going to do it anyways. So really, the purpose of the law is to point out this fact that we have a sinful nature and that we are sinners. That's why Paul said in verse 7, Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. And Paul explains himself by talking about coveting. And remember, do not covet, that's the Tenth Commandment. The, the Ten Commandments that Moses gave, very huge part of the law. And Paul's talking about do not covet. And perhaps what's going on in Paul's life here is that he's recognizing what happened with that specific law. You see, if the Bible didn't tell us that coveting was wrong, we might not think that it's wrong at all. We, we might look at our neighbor's stuff and say, yeah, I really want that. Hey, no, no, no problem. But I think maybe what's happening is that Paul studied that, that commandment, do not covet, and he realized, oh yeah, God doesn't want me to covet. I see myself wanting to covet, but God doesn't want me to covet. And not only that, it's also possible that the law itself inflamed this kind of sinful rebellion within him. And, and we've all seen this, right? When sometimes you don't even think about doing something until somebody tells you not to do it. And, and kids, let me talk to you. Have your parents ever told you, uh, we bought this bag of cookies, but we're going to save it for tomorrow when our friends come over, so don't eat it? What do you think you want to do with those cookies? Eat them! <laughs> Hey, parents, don't point your fingers at your kids. We've all done it. You know, it's, uh, it's part of our human nature. To, we see a command and all of a sudden we think, oh, maybe I should break that command. And I think that's what's going on here with the law. So the law is good, but the sinful nature might tempt us to sin along those lines. But again, the problem isn't the law. The problem is sin. For example, if I were to steal a car and get caught for it, and get thrown in jail, imagine me saying to my, my cellmate in there, oh, well, yeah, I stole it, but it wasn't my fault. The problem is that dumb law that we have that says you can't take somebody else's car. Why do we have such a law anyway? Well, let's take a step back. That's actually a really good law, isn't it? We're not supposed to take each other's cars. So, um, 
The law helps us understand sin, and that's why Paul can say that the law is good. It does what it's supposed to do. We don't do what we're supposed to do, but it's not the fault of the law. The law is good. Okay, moving on to number three then. Verses 13 through 25. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Kind of sing-songy verses here. I love this. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So number three, the law can't save, but Christ can. So did the law become death? Well, no, remember, the law is good. The fault isn't the law. The the fault is with our sin, and that's where death came from. Is from our sin. Sin caused the problem. Look at verse 14 again. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And that verse, by the way, verse 14, is perhaps the main reason why I take the view that I do, that this is Paul speaking from his former life as a Pharisee. Um, For him to say, unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, it just reminds me of chapter 6, where he says... um, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So it's hard for me to, to look at a Christian saying, I'm sold as a slave to sin. Yes, we can still choose to offer our parts of our body in slavery to sin, but we are not sold as slaves to sin anymore. We actually belong to Jesus Christ as Christians. Um, but for Paul, attempting to follow the law as a Jewish Pharisee, it was impossible for him to do it right. It was impossible for him to set himself free. The law, remember, was never intended to do that. So here's a really important part about Romans 7. The law can't free us from spiritual death. Our human effort, even our really well-intentioned human effort to try to be the best person we can be, to try to follow the rules, doesn't get us to God. It was never intended to work that way. And then verses 14 to 24 describe this struggle with sin. And again, if you want to view these as a Christian's ongoing struggle to sin, you can. I personally lean away from that view. Um, if you want a passage that I think does a better job of describing that struggle, I'd point you to Galatians 5:16 through 26. talks about following the sinful nature versus following the Holy Spirit, and I think that's our struggle still today. Um, another passage I would point you to would be Romans 8, which we're going to study next week. So there you go. 
But back to verses 14 through 23, Paul describes that war that went on in him, the, the whole, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I think somebody should write a Dr. Seuss book about that, don't you? Wouldn't that be a... Yeah, all right. One of you kids get on that. Um, okay. All right, good. I expect that on my desk by next week. All right. <laughs> Uh, Paul said he doesn't do what he wants to do, but he also said he delighted in God's law. And some people say, well, how could a non-Christian delight in God's law? And that's why they say this is talking about a Christian. But I would say, think about this from the perspective of a Pharisee. A Pharisee would have been somebody who said, yes, I love God's law. I want to do God's law. But I think Paul now, knowing Christ, looks back at his life and says, even though I said those things, and even though I wanted to do good, I know that I wasn't doing good. Because I didn't have Christ. As a sinner, he knew that the law was good, but he now knows that he didn't measure up to it. And the law sets a standard, and none of us measure up to that standard. And it's the same for us in 2014. If we think that the standard is trying to be a good person, well, how good of a person do you have to be? You have to be as good as Christ. And we can't do that. So that person who says, I I think I'm good enough, God will let me into heaven, it just saddens my heart to hear people trusting in that because it could never work. We need Christ. So I think that's what Romans 7 teaches us. We're sinners and we don't measure up even if we try. Paul said it earlier in chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. The result of law following is that we are prisoners of sin. That's what verse 23 says. And then Paul himself declared in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Let me pause for a moment here. Looking back at verses 14 to 23, two really important things, or rather people, that we don't see. We don't see Jesus. We don't see the Holy Spirit. Again, that's another reason why I think Paul is talking about his old life before knowing Christ. In his old life, it was this human attempt to try to follow God. How are we supposed to do it? We're supposed to give our lives to Jesus and then in the power of the Holy Spirit live the lives that God wants us to do. And we'll learn about that next week. But I think what Paul is saying in chapter 7 is we can't do it on our own. There's no possible way for us to do it on our own. So now here's the point where we're going to come back for our group hug, okay? Some of you might be clenching your teeth at me and saying, Eric, how could you possibly see the passage that way? Don't you realize that this is a Christian's struggle with sin? Well, okay, group hug here. The application, whether you view it that way or the way that I view it, is that we need Christ. We cannot do this life on our own. Actually, uh, verse 18 is kind of a key for me. Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. So either way you talk about it, he is talking about the life that follows the sinful nature, and that is clearly not the life we're supposed to live. We need Christ. We need to follow his ways. So Paul asks in verse 24, Who will rescue me from this body of death? And the answer is awesome. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God sent Jesus because we can't save ourselves. We were dead in sin. There was nothing we could do about it. It's only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can be saved. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for us. And in his death, we died. We died with him. And in his life, we have new life to live. Then the second half of verse 25. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. I think the best way to understand that would be a summary to say that 
he's talking about this struggle in his mind wanting to follow God's law but in the sinful nature being a slave to sin. And we're not actually supposed to live like that. If you look at Romans 8.1, it says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's where I would rather be in, not just in my mind, not, certainly not in sin, but in Christ Jesus. Okay, so recapping verses 13 to 25, Paul talks about the life of following the sinful nature. It is a life that we need to be rescued from because in our own human attempts we can't please God. But thanks be to God, he sent Jesus for us so we can be rescued. Okay, I've walked through Romans 7 now and I want to end with three application points. And again, I think these three are, are the same for either way you look at the passage. The first application point is that we need Christ. I hope you've gotten that. We can't come to God through rule following or just through trying to be as good as we can. Now, I enjoy a good rule. If somebody tells me what not to do, I am often thankful. And, okay, good, now I know what not to do. But the problem is with rule following is that we tend to think that we've earned our way to God in doing it. But the problem is our sin, and our sin separates us from God. And the only solution for our sin is Jesus Christ. If we were to read Romans 7 and realize that we too fail to follow God rightly, the answer should not be, well, I'll just try harder. You know, I I like a little bit of human effort, but remember, human effort will never get us to God. The answer is to give our lives to Jesus Christ. And then, once we've come to Christ and been filled with the Holy Spirit, then we can follow God. Attempting to obey is not enough. We need Jesus. He's the only one that can rescue us. So we are to die to any ideas of making it to God on our own. Paul used a marriage analogy in verses 1 through 3. And I'll ask the same question today as I asked yesterday at the wedding. Have you responded to Jesus' proposal? There's no marriage without a proposal, right? The two people have to come together somehow and, and one of them asks and the other one responds and that's how you get a marriage. It's the same way with Jesus. And, and he's the one who loved us first. He's the one who pursued us. He is the one who asks us And our response is that simple response of faith, saying yes to Jesus and giving our lives to him. And by the way, we give our lives to him, meaning he's in control now. We follow him, not our old way of life. And that means then that we're not under law. That's why Paul can say that. We're not under law because we're in Christ. And in Christ, we look back at the law, and yeah, maybe we can learn some things about it, but really we follow Christ. And if if Jesus gives a command... We should follow it because we love him, right? We don't just follow Jesus out of mere obedience. Obedience is a great thing, but love comes first. And Jesus himself said it in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will obey what I command. So first comes love. Then comes marriage. Then comes, what's the rest of you know it? <laughs> but, but first comes love. We give ourselves to him and then follow him. Okay, and then the second application point, the law is good. Now, this one might be difficult, and and we as Christians might look at Romans 7 and say, why do I need this? Why do I need to look at all these these Jewish questions about the law? Well, we still need to have a right attitude towards the law as well. Um, There's a couple wrong ways we could view it. One, we could just say, oh, that's that's just their problem and not mine. Or, Or we could say, you know what, I'm just a New Testament Christian anyway, so I'll just keep on reading the New Testament over and over and over and over again. But our response to Romans 7 shouldn't be to throw away our Old Testament. 
Our response should be to read the Old Testament recognizing that the law is good. Now, as we read it, we look for God's heart and God's character. We don't read it as people who are bound by it. For example, when, we, when you read the Old Testament and you see in there uh, a law saying you shall not eat shrimp, it doesn't mean that we shall not eat shrimp. That law has actually been repealed in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. But we read it as people who can learn about God. So as we read the Old Testament, we should be asking questions. What does this say about God? We're not bound by it in the way that a Jew was bound by it 3,000 years ago, but we can learn from it. We can learn the very character of God. And would you say that that's a useful thing to know? Absolutely. So the law is still good for us. There is still a use in us reading it, understanding who God is. And then the third application point, we should take sin seriously. Seriously, we should take it seriously. In sin, we are wretched. Sin is so serious that it leads to death. Sin is so serious that it took Jesus' death on the cross to rescue us from it. So I think we should take it seriously. As we saw in Romans 6.11, which, by the way, is one of two key verses I've picked out so far from the book of Romans. Romans 6.11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we're dead to sin. We belong to somebody else. We have a new master. Like that marriage analogy, we died to the law so that we could belong to Christ. That's the whole point of our lives. And in Christ, we have a new life. And in our new life with Christ, sin has no place. So when we see sin in our lives, which we still struggle with sin because the sinful nature still works on us. Uh, In Romans 6, it said that the sinful... uh, Let me read it. I want to get it right here. The body of sin might be done away with. Uh, That also can mean rendered powerless. I, I think the teaching of the Bible is that we came into this world slaves to sin. The sinful nature mastered over us in that sense. But when we came to Christ, we were set free from that. So the sinful nature no longer has mastery over us. So when when we hear the temptations of sin, it's not the temptation from somebody who has any authority over us, but rather I would say the sinful nature still speaks to us as a deceiver. We are not bound by the sinful nature. We belong to Christ and we follow his ways. But yet, I I used that two fields analogy recently where we were brought out of one field and placed into another, but we can still kind of hear what's going on in that old field. It's like that with us. We, we still know what an old life of sin is like. And it's still possible for us to follow the sinful nature even in this new life, but we don't have to. So when we see ourselves wandering back towards sin, offering the parts of our body to sin and to wickedness, we should hate it. Hate it so deeply that we want it gone and repent right away. Reminds me of what a pastor said. Uh, I was asking him about how he continues in his life of faith, and he said, the best I have done is to sin less often and repent more frequently. So the idea is, if we sin, we just take it right to God and say, God, I'm sorry about that. I recognize that that has no place in my new life with you. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Please strengthen me to live the life that you want me to live. You see, we don't have to follow the sinful nature. We are not held by its power. The Christian should never say, oh, you know, that's just me, that's who I am, I've always been that way, and I'll probably always struggle with that sin. I I once heard somebody say that, and you know what my response is? No way. 
We are dead to sin. Look at Romans 6, 2. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Does that sound like the words of somebody who says, oh, that's okay if you were born that way, just do it, or if you, str- if you really struggle with it, that's fine? No. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The better way to live our lives is the life of the Holy Spirit. Paul mentioned that in verse 6. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. We'll get into it deeply next Sunday as we look at chapter 8. So let's not follow the sinful nature. And if we do, let's repent right away because sin has no place in our lives. Let's take it seriously. Let's flee from it. Let's follow Christ. We choose to belong to the Christ. Not to the law and certainly not to sin. And then just a very quick conclusion here. Verses 24 and 25. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Back in verse 5 we saw that we were, when we were controlled by the sinful nature we bore fruit for death. Ephesians 2.1 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But in Christ we are rescued. Let me say that one more time for effect. In Christ we are rescued. And what should our response be? Thanks be to God. And that's how we're going to close our our service today. We're going to sing a song called Thank You, Jesus. It's a song that we should sing recognizing that we were sinners, unable to save ourselves. We were wretched and really should have cried out, who will save me? And our answer came. And maybe you didn't know how dead you were, how lost you were, how much of a sinner you were. But the truth is that Jesus Christ came for us to rescue us. And I want to invite you to sing with me. So I'm going to close in prayer and then we'll sing that song. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for salvation. We recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we come before you right now and we praise you that you rescue us through Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. And whether for the first time or for the 1,000th time, we just come before you again and and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we pray, God, that you would strengthen us to continue to walk with him as Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.